As we continue our series in the book of Exodus, and as the cute ones all leave, bye-bye. Oh my goodness. Alec, you're not one of the cute ones, just so you know. Our theme passage for the first half of the book of Exodus, Exodus is so large, we're going to actually use two different passages. Uh, The first half of the book of Exodus theme is found in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, Moses is given a message from God to give to the people of Israel, and in doing so, he makes several I will statements. So he says, I will do this, I will do that, I will do the other Uh, Several of those. The first three of those I will statements um, are what God is rescuing them from. The final three are about what God is giving them. So, uh, in fact, when we, I'm working really hard to not preach Exodus chapter six today because I had so much delight in looking at uh, this theme passage. Uh, But the first three are what God is rescuing from. The last three are what God is giving them, and so they're kind of parallel in that sense. And then the one in the middle, which is the pinnacle, which is the one making the point, is this, I will take you to be my people. So the whole passage uh, reads like this. This is Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the complete message that, uh, that Moses is given by God to tell the people of Israel. Now that makes for a very lengthy theme passage, so we're going to reduce it a bit to Exodus chapter 6, just the last part of verse 6, and then all of verse 7. So we've got that to put up on the screen, so if we could have that there. Uh, This is our theme passage for uh, the first half of the book of Exodus. Would you read it along with me? Exodus 6, 6 and 7. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What greater source of comfort and encouragement could the Israelites get than to know that God was going to deliver them from all these troubles. He was going to give them all these provisions and at the high point of his promise, I will take you to be my people. God is a saving God. He took the initiative to save them. He's the one who takes the initiative to save us. So last week we set the scene from the book of Genesis, giving a broad overview. Today we're going to spend just a minute or two looking at other passages of Scripture that help us get some more historical context of the book of Exodus. I'm going to go through these quickly. Uh, All they do is help us to establish um, an actual 
year for when these things take place. So 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. 1 Kings 6, 1 says this. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So in 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, the author relays to us the, the beginning moments of uh, the, the building of the temple. Uh, David so longed to give the Lord a permanent dwelling place on earth, and, and he wasn't able to. He, he saved up the provisions, but Solomon uh, does that. And uh, historically, we know when Solomon's reign was. And so we know that, that from 1 Kings chapter 6, 1, in the first, fourth year of Solomon's reign, it was the 480th year after Israel came out of Egypt. Are you tracking with me a little bit? Okay, don't fall asleep. Uh, so, uh, therefore, 1446 B.C., is the year of the Exodus. Now, Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, tells us that they were in Egypt for 430 years. So when uh, Jacob and his family moved into Egypt, uh, by the time they left, after they spent years multiplying and dying, multiplying and dying, multiplying and dying, because that's what people do, it was 430 years. That's Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. Scripture records that it was exactly 430 years. Which means, if we take the 1446 BC as the year of the Exodus and add 430 years to it, that makes 1876 B.C. as the exact year that Jacob and his family enter. So Joseph was 39 when his family entered Egypt. He died at 110. Therefore, Joseph's death was 1805. What does all that mean? All that means is that we can now look historically and figure out who was the Pharaoh, right? And so I did that. And guess what? We still don't know. Because it's difficult to line up the Egyptian dynasties to our calendar. Uh, and so uh, most likely it's a, a man named Amenhotep II or Thutmose II at the time of the actual exodus. So that means it was their predecessors that were uh, certainly there when Joseph uh, came to power. In fact, it would have been one of uh, the Pharaoh's predecessor, the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus, it was one of his predecessors that we're going to look at today. And it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, Exodus keeps talking about Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. That's his title. That's not his name. And being his title, that means that title gets passed on generation to generation. So the man we're talking about today as Pharaoh is not the same Pharaoh that Moses says, uh, God said, let my people go. How do I know this? Because Moses was around 80 years old when he started confronting Pharaoh. And there was no Pharaoh that reigned that long in this time period. So, uh, we are not looking at the same Pharaohs we're going to look at later. But it doesn't matter because Pharaoh still has the same attitudes that Pharaohs have in the time of the Exodus. And we're going to see that together. So follow along with me. See, that history lesson wasn't too long, was it? You're still with me? We'll read our passage for this morning, Exodus chapter 1, beginning where we left off last week, in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would use even this passage of Scripture to impact our lives today. This passage shows us an evil man with evil intent, and it shows an evil nation. The Egyptians went along with their Pharaoh. Father, I pray that you would open these words to our hearts so that we might recognize how we can apply them to our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Our big idea this morning is God always prevails over his enemies. God always prevails over his enemies. And we're going to see that even in, in this passage today where, uh, where Pharaoh is, is getting um, more intense with the Israelites. What God has blessed, Pharaoh seeks to minimize. Remember from verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly that that echoing of the, the garden mandate of be fruitful and multiply, uh, an echoing of that mandate given to Noah after the flood to be fruitful and multiply. What did the people of Israel in verse 7 do? They were being fruitful and they were multiplying and they increased greatly. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What God has blessed the people of Israel, Pharaoh is seeking to minimize. Pharaoh is a picture of, of sin. He's a picture of evil. Now, I'm not suggesting that, um, that Exodus is allegorical and simply a story designed to produce a moral response. No, these are historical events. There was a real person who had the title of Pharaoh in a real nation of Egypt with a real Israelite nation within that nation that had been growing. The events we're going to study here in Exodus really did happen. But I'll remind us what I have to remind myself often from 2 Timothy 3.16, which a good chunk of you could probably mostly recite. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? So that we might be thoroughly equipped or fully matured. All Scripture that includes Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. So there is something in this passage for us. And what we're going to see is that, uh, that, yes, these events happen, but they also show us a picture, a picture of evil growing in the land. So I'm going to refer to Pharaoh as God's enemy. And our first point this morning, God's enemy fears. Now, you're not going to find the word 
afraid here in verses 8 and 9. But we do see that we have uh, this new king that didn't know Joseph. Of course he didn't know Joseph. Joseph had been dead for centuries. 300 years or more, Joseph had been dead. And yes, I did the math. It's right around 300 years. So the reigning pharaoh at the time of the Exodus uh, would likely have known the history of Joseph, the seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, because that was a, a, a national, international tragedy, that, that seven years of famine and the, the rise of Joseph. He probably knew at least some of the details, but the reigning pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 would certainly have had no affection for Joseph. What he did know was that the Hebrew people had once been confined to the area of Egypt known as the land of Goshen, but because they have grown so much, they have now spread significantly. When we look at verse 9, we don't see Pharaoh saying, wow, look at how many of them there are. No, look what he says. He says to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. That's not just a statement of fact, that is a statement of fear, isn't it? We live in an age where it can be difficult to understand the difference when we're being told opinion versus just the dry facts. Why? Because the people trying to tell us the story of what happened oftentimes get their emotion and their, let's be honest, their political bent into that story and they start uh, telling some opinion more though, so than just the actual facts. Pharaoh is doing that right here. He doesn't say, behold, the, the nation of Israel has been very fruitful. They have multiplied greatly. No, he says they are not just many. He says they are too many. That's where he's inserting his opinion. He doesn't just say they are mighty. He says they are too mighty. In other words, Pharaoh is less concerned with the census, the actual count of people. He's concerned with their potential might, and he's afraid. The very first time I counseled at a camp was after my sophomore year in college. I was part of a music ministry team. We traveled out west. We were in Washington State, and um, I grew up in Iowa. We had Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. That's the camp I was used to. This was not that. Uh, this was a rented facility that a uh, handful of churches had, had rented for a couple weeks to do a couple weeks of camp. And so they had to bring in all their food. We had a, a trailer uh, attached to our school van, and we had it packed to the ceiling with supplies for the week of camp as we drove it up the mountain so we could have a week of camp. Very, very different than what happens at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. Uh, this was my first week counseling at a camp. I was the lone counselor of my cabin, and I had 24 junior high boys. 24. By the way, we usually have two counselors at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp in a cabin of 10. Okay, just me and 24 boys. If they had ever had the realization of just how many of them there were to their one counselor who didn't know what he was doing, they could have told totally overrun the entire place, right? Fortunately, they never did figure that out. 
Pharaoh recognized that the strength in numbers that Israel had would not work in his favor, and he was afraid. What's that have to do with us? Our God is a God who produces peace, not fear, at least in his children's lives, right? Yes, God will use fear in our lives for our protection. It's good that you're uh, afraid of uh, certain wild animals. It's good that you're afraid as a five-year-old to cross cyclone that might have happened this week as one of my dear children decided to walk to the coffee shop all by herself. God uses fear for our protection. It's true. But our God is not a God of fear, is he? He's a God of peace. We talked about that in Philippians 4, didn't we? And the God of peace will protect you. God's enemies fear. Or God's enemy fears. I'm looking singular. God's enemy persecutes. Verses 10 through 11. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they're showing that fear again. They join our enemies and fight against us and escape. So what do they do? They make life harder on the Israelites. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And since they've got this labor that they have voluntold, they have conscripted, they have enslaved, they put them to work, setting up these store cities of Pithom and Ramses. There is something about the corrupt mind, the sin-cursed mind, what actually we would call the natural mind, mind. There's something about the natural mind that is not satisfied to live and let live. And look at Pharaoh's response. He, he's not satisfied for the Israelites to live while he and the Egyptians live. No. And not only did he decide that he wanted to make the Israelites do something, his response is not exactly logical. Look how it unfolds. He says, there are a lot of Hebrew people in the land. So Pharaoh says, I don't like that. So I'm going to make life hard for them. Now, isn't making life hard for the Israelites going to actually incentivize the thing that he fears? Right? Isn't that going to make the Hebrew people be motivated to rise up against Pharaoh? Yeah, so his response is not exactly logical. I'm not suggesting that Pharaoh was unable to think strategically, but it's clear that God blinds people from reality, doesn't he? And that's what's happening here. If the multiplication of the Hebrew people is your problem, making them work harder is not a solve. If the potential of the Hebrew people rising up against you is the problem, making them mad is not the answer, and yet that's exactly what Pharaoh does. So what's happening here is God's sovereignty is on full display in every aspect, which leads me, leads me to the next point, verse 12. God's enemy is foiled. God's enemy is afraid, is persecuting, is uh, degrading the people by, by forcing them into this labor, and yet his efforts are being foiled. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Note the progression. They were oppressed more, and they multiplied more, which is not what Pharaoh wanted. 
and they spread out more, which also was not what Pharaoh wanted. And so the dread was not just of the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh. The dread was with all the Egyptians. And this dread most likely had a sort of cultural and perhaps even racial bias as well. Back in Genesis chapter 46 and, and chapter 47, when Jacob, Jacob's family is moving to Egypt. So Joseph has been number two in command in Egypt. He has saved food for those seven years of plenty. And in, during the famine, Egypt became the storehouse for the surrounding nations as well. And so uh, Joseph has sent for his father finally to come. I'm skipping all sorts of wonderful things in Genesis. Bless you. Jacob finally moves. So Joseph's father and his family finally moves. And in Genesis chapter 46, verses 33 and 34, Joseph, speaking to his family, says, When Joseph calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. And here's the key. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So even when Pharaoh uh, of old was being generous, being kind, letting Joseph uh, do what he wanted to do, which, I mean, why wouldn't he? he? He pretty much was on snooze letting Joseph take care of the whole kingdom, right? Uh, when Joseph brings his family from, the nation, from what we know of as the nation of Israel, bringing them in, uh, he actually gives them basically an empty valley that is well watered and suited for uh, the flocks and herds that Jacob's family has. And even way back then, when that first 70 people moved to Egypt, there was a cultural disdain of the Egyptians towards the Hebrew people. Prejudice and cultural hostility is easily passed on from generation to generation. It's evident in our country. We don't necessarily, I don't see much of any racial tensions in our town doesn't mean it doesn't happen but go south go south i don't just mean missouri go farther south and even in our nation there's quite a bit of racial bias and cultural hostility in our own land why because parents pass it on to their children don't they it's in essence what happens that's what's happened in egypt 350 years later so this disdain remains so God's enemy fears the Israelites is trying to persecute them and yet they continue to grow the, the enemy's plans are foiled so what does he do in verses 13 and 14 the enemy doubles down he's frustrated so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves making their lives bitter with hard service. Pharaoh thinks he is getting what he wants. He wants to diminish the threat of the Hebrews. Perhaps he thought that they would reduce in numbers or in strength if he made them miserable. By the way, that's not how that works. But what's really happening is God is giving Pharaoh, if I could use a common, not common, a more, more current parlance, God is giving Pharaoh enough rope to hang himself. You understand what that means? 
Instead of stopping Pharaoh, could God have stopped Pharaoh here? Absolutely. Could God have stopped Pharaoh a century earlier? Yes, absolutely. Could God have given all the subsequent Pharaohs a kind heart to the, the Israelites like the, the original Pharaoh that we learn about in Genesis had toward Joseph and his family? Yes, he could have. But God is making his will come about in a different way, in a negative way, through the, the evil of Pharaoh and subsequent Pharaohs. And as we might say today, giving him enough rope to hang himself. God had, could have prevented these abuses, but he's allowing Pharaoh to follow his own egotistical desires. Pharaoh has the opportunity to go, do good to the people of Israel, even in this passage. He has the opportunity. He has the ability. He is number one in the land. He is known as a god among the Egyptians. There was nothing that he said that people wouldn't do, right? So he had the ability to find ways that they could mutually benefit each other. The Israelites are a great resource of labor. Let's find a way for you to build the cities that we want built and also profit yourself. I mean, that's what we do when we go to work today, right? We have mutually benefits. Uh, you benefit your employer, your employer benefits you. Pharaoh could have figured out a way, but instead he abuses the Israelites, and this is only the start. Next week, we'll see how Pharaoh goes even further by sacrificing the baby boys of the Israelites to his false god, the Nile River. But that's where we are today. Pharaoh is clearly the enemy of God. And it'd be easy to look at this passage and go, well, this isn't talking about me. Let's go through our main points again. God's enemy fears. When I feel threatened by someone or something, am I acting more like a child of God? Or am I acting like God's enemy? When we succumb ourselves to fear, are we responding like a child of God who should turn to his or her heavenly father in prayer and ask for help in their trouble? Or do we act like God's enemy and sit in fear and try to come up with ways out of it ourselves? God's enemy fears being weak, but God's child trusts God. That's not me saying it. That's from the scripture. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Many of you know that verse. In my weakness, he is strong. When I am weak, I am strong. It's Paul talking about all the things that, that he's gone through that have caused him stress and, and weakness. And he said, look, when God is working on my behalf, it doesn't matter how weak I am. So he says, I am content in my weakness and persecutions. God's enemy fears God's child trusts. God's enemy persecutes or manipulates, tries to force his own outcome. When I try to force my own desired outcome, am I 
acting more like a child of God or acting like an enemy of God. wasn't that long ago I preached it, but I'm going to quote it anyway. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Instead of trying to force my will upon my life. I need to go to him in prayer. Act like a child of God, not an enemy of God. God's enemy in Exodus chapter 1 is foiled by God. He is, has his plans uh, come to naught. But God responds by actually working against the Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh wants the Israelites to be less and God blesses them more. God's enemy is foiled by God, but the enemy responds by doubling down on his sin. When my plans are frustrated by God, and that happens a lot, when my plans are frustrated by God, do I repent? Do I turn away from my plans, turn away from my sins and turn to him? Or do I find ways to sin more? When God stands in my way, do I respond like a child of God or like an enemy of God? Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. When my mind insists on having my way, Scripture says that I am hostile toward God. James is a little more blunt than Paul, and that's saying quite a bit because Paul was pretty blunt. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. Isn't that a great way to start a verse? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why would friendship with the world, and what he means by that is the ways of the world, the sinful ways of the world. Why would that even be a thing for us? Well, because it appeals to our desires, doesn't it? It appeals to our fleshly self. When we decide to follow our own fleshly desires, we are, and th these are written to believers, we are making ourselves an enemy of God, Right? God always prevails over his enemies. Ouch, right? When we started this passage, I didn't really think I was going to end up calling myself an enemy of God, but sometimes I act like it. Sometimes you do too. God always prevails over his enemies. The question is, are you submitting to God's will or are you playing the part of God's enemy? For the believer, the answer is simple. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that relationship, you've trusted him for your salvation, the answer is simple. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The, the answer is simple. Tell God, I know that I'm sinning, I know that my heart is not right. Change me. He forgives. 
So for the believer, the, the answer is simple. Examine yourselves for way that you, ways that you are resisting God's truth in your life. We all do to an extent. That's why we have to examine our own lives. Someone else can't look into your mindset. Now, we can see actions, and, and you can get accountability for actions, having someone else hold you accountable for living for the Lord based on your actions. When it comes to your thought life, that's, that's a lot harder. When it comes to uh, your life in private, that's a, a lot more difficult. You have to actually examine yourself. Use the word of God to examine you. Maybe it's how you treat others. Maybe it's how you spend your downtime. Whatever it is, turn back to God in repentance. For the believer, when we are playing the part of the enemy, it's turn back to God. For the unbeliever, for someone who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, right now, you are a declared enemy of God. It's not that sometimes you play the role of being an enemy. No, if you're an unbeliever, you are an enemy of God. And it's not that God looks at you and says, I defy you, you are my enemy. No, it's actually the other way around, isn't it? You have observed and known God in the ways that he's revealed himself to you and the, the, the knowledge that you have from Scripture, the knowledge you have just from creation. And you said, nope, I know better. In fact, in our natural state, we have all defied God. If you have not yet responded in faith to God, God's call of salvation in your life, you are still his enemy. But the good news is he made a way. Just as we're going to see in the book of Exodus how God made the impossible happen. He parted the Red Sea. And he did so far more dramatically than any cinematographer has captured. Right? Because he didn't use tricks. God just made it happen. So that the nation, the entire nation of Israel could cross through the sea on dry ground. He made a way. He made the impossible happen. Just as God made the impossible happen in Exodus, he has done the impossible for us. He has made a way for us not to just stop being enemies of God, but he's made a way for us to be his family, to be his child. It really does come down to that one word, confess, doesn't it? To confess means to state what you know is true. Confess that you are a sinner in need of rescue. Confess that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And what, is, what does Romans say? And you will be saved. Believer, don't act like an enemy. Unbeliever, stop being an enemy. Put your faith in him today. Live no longer as an enemy of God, but surrender your will to his will see what he does. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Lord, we ask that you would help us to surrender to your will in our lives. For some, that may be that first step of faith, trusting Jesus for salvation. 
For others, it might be uh, taking a step of faith in how we live for you, whether it's taking real time from our days to be devoted to you by reading the scripture and praying. Or maybe it's uh, submitting ourselves to your will by stepping out of our comfort zone and sharing Christ with someone who doesn't know. Lord, whatever it is that you need for each one of us to take, whatever step it is that you need for each one of us to take in our lives, help us to take it. Use your spirit to prompt us. Don't, don't treat us like you treated Pharaoh. You let Pharaoh do what he wanted to do, and it caused his unraveling. Rather than letting us do what we want to do, Father, guide us, shepherd us, draw us to yourself. Thank you for the ways that you will answer this prayer as we go throughout this week seeking to serve you. In Jesus' name. so well we're going to do it again the uh, softly and tenderly <laughs>